And so I was driving a couple weeks ago to Galena with my friends for a road trip to visit the area, Galena, Illinois. And one of the significant things we noticed was how gas prices were going down ever bit so slightly from like a high in the Chicago area of $5 a gallon to like four seventy, four sixty five a gallon as we were in the city of Galena. And, you know, my my sister's boyfriend looks at me and he jokes, you know, damn, gas prices are cheap. But, you know, think about 2020 when gas prices were $3 a gallon and it really gives you perspective on how things are changing with the cost of gas right now. And, you know, there's a lot more to be said there because the price of gas affects not only how much it costs to take a road trip out to Galena for the summer, but also costs of public transportation or you know someone making the decision whether or not they should bike to work or to the store or go or just walk you know there's a lot to it yeah i think we're starting this up at the right time like do you do you find yourself not wanting to use a car because of the price you know i i will have to admit you know it's very challenging to you know get up and go to work not because I don't enjoy my work but because I have to you know think to myself how many hours today am I putting in that are not going to be spent making money but spent uh paying off the next time I fill up my uh, gas in my car so it's you know not a very fun thought to have when you think of it in terms of you know the costs on your wages how do you feel about metro's new program for a hundred dollar unlimited pass for a month that was with the conjunction of the CTA, right? Um, this one was, I think, just for their system. I heard about the oh, one for the CTA. Yeah, because they recently did a uh, rolled out a pass with the CTA Innovation Office, where you pay a flat monthly amount and you get access to Metra, Pace, and the CTA. Or maybe it was just Metra and the CTA. I'm not sure on that. We'd have to double check it. Um, but something like a hundred dollar monthly pass you know honestly sounds very attractive right now because we're getting to the point where people who own like a premium car like i've been driving an infinity i'm already paying a hundred dollars to fill up everyone else driving on regular gas they're getting there as we start seeing gas prices get up towards seven dollars a gallon and maybe even higher i think that like having that metro pass work like would there be a way from you to get to the metro metro station to where you work easily without a car but that's you know the primary challenge when it comes to someone making the decision whether to drive or take public transit me with my job there's no public transit whatsoever that i can take to get there if you work in the city um it's possible but you just have to you know figure out how to get from the station to where you're working if it's in the loop generally it's pretty simple you walk i think that comes down to the last mile being a and i've heard that term being used before as being kind of the the big question of how a lot of this is going to work in the future for people and i think that really ties in well with you know planners and policymakers and politicians all have to be on the same page for this kind of yeah it highlights the intersection between politics planning and policy which is what this show is called intersection my name is benjamin poloni i'm a uh, public administration master's student at uic i also like to call myself policy poloni i'm mark edler 
I like to call myself Mark the Urbanist. I am an urban planning and policy student at UIC. Two UIC students who met in the great city of Schaumburg. Schaumburg is a well-known community in the Chicagoland area for, I think, the shopping and for a lot of the, you know, mostly the shopping. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, Schaumburg, you know, in its own right, has been one of the largest uh, economic hubs in the state, aside from Chicago and Naperville. Um, And Woodfield Mall generally had been its anchor for a long while. I haven't been there recently, but I would imagine that the COVID pandemic took a pretty hard toll on Woodfield Mall, as malls across the country were, you know, just dying from people not wanting to go out shopping. Yeah, we've already been getting the, you know, the feeling at the end of the 2010s that shopping malls were not really the, they weren't really the future. And I think now we definitely know after COVID that I haven't personally been to a mall in years, especially during the pandemic. So it's one of those things where, and then outside of that, right next to the mall are huge office buildings that were probably constructed in a quantity that was, I don't know what the occupancy rate was at its maximum, but now I can't imagine what it's like. Yeah, and planners and uh, public officials, especially at the local over, are now having to cope with the effects of the pandemic and gas prices and everything have been having on malls and just the overall uh, decision people are making to shop online instead of go out and shop in person. And, you know, they've been working on coming up with more creative solutions to fix it. For example, I know in uh, Northbrook, they have the mall Northbrook Court, which is a pretty big staple of their town. And what they're doing is they're building a new apartment complex that is part of the mall in an old uh, store that the department store they used to have there. Same, same in Vernon Hills at Hawthorne Mall. So yeah, you know, going back to the, and it's, it's really not much in the way of innovation because it is an age old idea that in order to have a successful uh, business commercial district, you need to have a level of uh, a certain level of people living there to anchor it, you know, to, act as an anchor of customers for those businesses. That is a planning theory that I think we'll touch on in different points of the podcast, but definitely if you've heard the term mixed use, it's definitely driving a lot of the trends and was even before the COVID pandemic. Yeah, I mean, in this podcast, you know, throughout the many episodes that we're going to be recording, obviously this one being the first recording we're doing in the beautiful home of uh Mark Edler, uh, we're going to be touching on multiple different subjects from housing to transit to little things like parking minimums or, um, you know, economic development. And we're going to look at, you know, the different ways that politics, policy and planning all come together to create that issue and to solve it. Absolutely. And we're launching at a point where... I think that generally you might be learning about urban planning for the first time, and that just might be because of where gas prices are. So we're all coming together to think about these issues and join us on what might seem like a rabbit hole, but we hope you find it enthralling. 
Yeah, this is definitely a great time to start up a podcast like this because, you know, we're seeing a lot of things happening in the city, in the state, the nation, and the world right now that all have to do with the topics we're going to be discussing. You know, gas prices are not as simple as, oh, this is how much it's going to cost to fill up my car today. It's affecting a lot more than that. Right, right. I, I think that we're, I think we have to think about, you know, when you think about like what the point of being in your community is, I think a lot of people are going to consider, you know, is how big of a part of my identity is driving that I'm willing to continue to do it, even if it's not the most economic. Yeah, thing that's to do. one of the, the the big questions that uh, Mark Edler got me onto back when we met at our internship at the Village of Schaumburg is, you know, how central the car is to our lives. You know, we don't think about it, but the car is an extension, as many planners have said, of us. It's a it's a place it's a place that we sleep in some people actually call their cars home it's a place that we travel in it's a place that you know we uh have romantic dates with our uh, significant others in <laughs> to that point um you know and it's even a place where horror stories have been created i was telling my friend mark you know the other day about how there's this uh, urban legends podcast i've been listening to uh and two of the urban legends out of like the 12 or so that he's discussed already derived from cars you know killer in the back seat and disappearing hitchhiker so it really shows you how impactful the cars is on our lives and also we were i mentioned earlier today that like we you know someone dies in a car accident we generally you know don't bat an eye over it we just accept that the chance that you're gonna go out in your car and start driving and die is a normal part of life natural death there's a, I think, a lot of irrational behaviors and stories with them that I don't quite understand why we don't have the same discussion about pace buses in our society. Yeah. But. but what's really interesting to think about is how the current gas prices and how they're going up, is it affecting the choices people are making in terms of transportation are more people going to be taking the train the bus or even biking rather than driving and you know there's a lot of opinions on it that's for sure but i think uh what we're seeing is and this is you know makes the situation even more complicated and history interesting is we're not going to see a significant change from people to drive from driving to public transit yeah i, I think that it's a you know, People are so ingrained in what they want to do that they won't take a chance on it for whatever reason. Like, so we're coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic, right? What happened during the pandemic? Nobody, public transit just crashed and burned. Like, a, you know, in It was still flies. running, but... It was running, but, you know, people weren't using it or even had the situation popping up in Chicago of the uh, ghost buses. They're still a problem. <laughs> yeah, still a problem, but... Uh, what it came down to was people didn't want to be on public transit because they were afraid of, you know, being around other people. Car ownership surged, even home ownership surged. People were wanting to get out of apartments or the city and, you know, get away from everyone else because of this, you know, fear that we were all having over getting COVID-19. And so now that we're coming out of this pandemic, 
you know, we're now seeing the high gas prices cause another roadblock for transportation. But, but I view it as I'm optimistic. It's an opportunity that slowly, I think when we figure out the last mile type of dilemma for some people, I, I think that that might be the biggest hindrance for people, at least in your case, where getting from the metro station to your work, there there isn't a service. And from what I've seen with Uber and Lyft, the prices are much too high. And if you go to a community that is lower population density, even getting a ride is much lower. So what what's going to be the way forward with that? Do you think people are going to bring bikes on trains to fill that last mile gap or will the city step in and have like a call a ride type of thing or well and, and, and that's a very important piece of the puzzle when it comes to public transit but i still i think we're still at a point where we can't even get to solving the last mile problem because we're still stuck trying to solve the problem of how do we get people onto the train right and a lot of it has to do with you know how often is the train coming how often is its occurrence because one of the nice things about having a car is you can just jump in and go whenever you want to you don't have to you know you're not relying on a train schedule I think from like an operator's perspective, you're trying to balance frequency of service versus coverage. Because if you're running an agency, you have a finite amount of resources, drivers, buses, trains. So, you know, how do you optimize, so to speak, all those resources to cover a large metropolitan area? Because you can't create more drivers than you can't make more buses like there can't be a bus at every single moment in time it's almost like you know how do we how do we deal with that and that that right there is the big big question of uh urban planning and even policy to an extent because you know you can't have that perfect service when it comes to people having access to a bus or train at any given time of the day and that is a huge barrier for people choosing to drive so much so that, you know, we're not going to see a huge surge in new riders because of high gas prices, because simply cars are still more, you know, easy for people to use. Right. But then there comes a point where we're seeing where gas prices are going and we're like, at what point is it like we have to completely revolutionize and rethink what public transit can do for people because at a certain point like it's going to like what how long can this go on for do you think well you know we already know from you know numerous uh, I always read in the news every day about you know what's happening with gas prices and I remember reading a month ago gas prices are going to hit $6 a gallon now I'm reading gas prices are going to hit $8 a gallon you know, by the end of the summer. So I think it has the potential to keep going up higher and higher for quite a bit of time. Then I think like like society's attachment or at least American society's attachment to it is going to, I think eventually that emotional attachment, you know, has to give way at, at some point. Like there has to be a moment of like, this is too much. Yeah, but, you know, I'd point out my uh, my boss at work, you know, he mentioned to me how, you know, we were too young to experience it, but right after the 9-11 attacks, gas prices also skyrocketed. Granted, um, it wasn't a significant period of time, but they went up and, you know, it's not like we just ditched cars. 
we didn't have a reckoning after that when it came to car ownership and usage. And I think eventually gas prices, you know, th- this this rise that we're seeing right now, it's going to go on for maybe some time, especially as long as we're seeing all these geopolitical issues causing the rise in gas from the war in Ukraine to inflation and so forth. Um, but they will come down again eventually. You know, things will settle down. Assuming, you know, Putin and Russia can calm their jets. Right. No pun intended, right? Um so I think that from where I'm at right now, it's like, who, who can we convince that they want to try to bike? You know, who are we going to, what is that segment of population that's going to say, I'm, I'm going to try to bike here. I'm going to try to take the trainer, but like, who are you just like, what's, what do they look like? What are they, because some people are just never going to be convinced, I think. But there is a, there has to be a target audience that's like, mm-hmm. I want to, I want to try this. Well, one, it comes down to, you know, it's very strictly limited in general to the city. Like most bikers you're having in the suburbs, you're not going after people, getting them to bike to work. There's like always that one couple odd people out there, I'll say, <laughs> yeah. that actually, you know, will bike like 20 miles through the suburbs to get to work every day. You know, they get up at 6 a.m., they hit the boat on their bike, and they get to work two hours later at 8 a.m. or something like that. You know, those may exist, but for the most part, people who are biking in the suburbs, they're just doing it recreationally. So when it comes to getting people to use biking as a form of transportation, you first are limited to much to urban areas. And is it a, is it a demographic issue too? Is it that certain age groups, obviously, like certain physical abilities are going to impact this too? But I don't know. That, that's hard to say because I've seen a wide range of like, you know, a lot of the older, a lot of the bikers in the suburbs. They tend to be much older people. You don't really see a lot of young people bike in the suburbs. But when you do get into the city, that's actually when you do start seeing a lot more young people. So that's an interesting thing. I think is that. You know, and I have to actually look into the uh, data on it, but I would say from what I've seen that uh, recreational bikers tend to be older and worker bikers tend to be younger. I think, though, the paradigm shift that has occurred from my perspective is that that traditional commuting mode, that traditional, you know, idea of commuting is slightly different in the work from home era. So what I'm finding is from a study from the University of Texas in their uh, engineering department is, well, one, men are more likely to bike to work than women. And then two, it is by huge margin that those who are biking to work are within the 18 to 24 range. And it slowly drops as you go 25 to 34, 35 to 44, you start seeing, you know, drop off. So it's definitely a younger and skewed towards men demographic that is using bicycle, the bicycle for transportation to work. Is that the most important trip, though, that be like, are there other trips that we can focus on? Because I think like when you talk about mixed use developments earlier and work from home and a lot of these trends, like. The workplace, not for everyone, but for some people, is more of a a 
it fits in with other elements of their life. So, like, you know, you're talking about, like, people biking to the grocery store, yeah. to the music store, to shopping in right. general. Or, I'm when it comes to that, I mean, you'll still have that, but I think you're going to start seeing a major drop-off in terms of people actually doing that. Like, biking to work is the most um, meaningful and simple uh, activity to get to try and convince people to take because from home to work you know you're not having to bring anything generally back from work right you're going from point a to point b and then back from point b to point a when it comes to going shopping or something you're generally going to start accumulating goods while you're out there you know be it groceries or shopping or clothes or whatever and people don't like to have that burden of having to then move those things by way of bike back to home like i could tell you know i lived for three years in the city of chicago out of the little italy neighborhood and i never for one ever enjoyed having to go to the grocery store by way of public transit um you know it was it, it wasn't made easy to you know move things by bus or train back to your home you know it's not designed for that you know just imagine like you go shopping for a tv you're gonna move that on the cta <laughs> But then, you know, and we can now insert here into the conversation a, uh, you know, policy slash political issue, inflation. You know, not only have we been seeing a significant rise in the cost of gas where it's like almost, you know, every day I'm driving to work, it seems like gas is going up by 10 cents every day. Um, What we're also seeing is everything is going up in price because of inflation. And, you know, how is that? you know, having an impact as well. You know, groceries are going up in cost, uh, even cars, and hell, even bikes are probably going up in cost, and wages aren't keeping up with that, you know, rising cost. It's a good question. I think that certainly is affecting a whole other way of looking at these problems from the perspective of what work is for people and how those jobs have to adapt to you know there's just seems like a lack of options i mean right there you know that's actually something we have yet to touch on i mean the whole new idea of where you work doesn't matter as much as actually getting the work done you know one of the big things that has come out of the covid pandemic is people are working from home I mean, we've slowly been seeing, you know, you know, many companies are going back to work, but I say the vast majority are adopting a hybrid work schedule, you know, a couple of days in the office, a couple of days out of the office. And that, you know, in itself is having an impact in terms of, you know, how much people are spending on gas. You know, they're spending less if they're on a hybrid or complete remote schedule because they're driving less. But actually, an interesting thing, I heard this on NPR actually today, is that, you know, while people might be spending less on gas to get to work because they're not working in the office as much, they're now replacing those two work trips with more trips elsewhere, be it, you know, to a place of entertainment or even a road trip or something. So if that's true, then you would see that people are could potentially, if they wanted to, take a bike to do something recreationally instead of going to work. <laughs> yeah, you if you really wanted if you really wanted that to be the situation at least that's what I like to think. That could be a a way that people are 
taking that trip? It could be, yes. But, you know, there's still a lot more, you know, factors and influences at play here. Um, you know, another big thing is that coming out of the pandemic, we've spent the past couple of years, you know, cooped up in our houses, not doing anything going outside. And so with even with the rising gas prices, people don't care. They just want to go get out and go on a road trip, you know, and you're not taking a bike on a road trip. They want to go on their summer vacations now because they're tired of just staying at home, gaining weight and playing video games, which is what I did for the past two years. <laughs> I finally hit the gym again this past Sunday, so, you know, I'll start making making a comeback. Did you bike to the gym? Sadly, I took the car to the gym. You drove? <laughs> I drove to the gym. You know, it's funny because the gym is actually... It, it, this is like a almost like a philosophical level thing, right? Or you know, spiritual. I don't know how to put it, but you know, the gym is like so close, but it's so close by car, right? It takes five minutes to get there by car. By taking the bike, I'd be adding on another ten minutes. And while fifteen minutes doesn't seem like a lot, when you think of it in terms of time and the cost that you're you're spending on that time, five minutes sounds a lot better than 15 minutes to get to work out. But it's a physical activity anyway. <laughs> I, it's what I don't understand. It's like you're doing an activity that... Yes, you're, 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 you're too lazy to, uh, you know, exert your... Uh, your it's almost energy. ironic. It's like we're, <laughs> no, you know, we're thinking about. And, and but that's it's it's funny because that's what everyone does. You know, you go to LA Fitness in Glenview, and you have this huge parking lot, and it's always filled up. Like, but they're have, huge, and that's because of parking minimums. You know, I talked yeah. about that earlier. But like, but, there's some but reason these why parking stalls are like you have to drive around a couple times. There's but there's so many parking spaces. Like you think that that's there's a better use for that space could be could be but you know going back to your point like all these people are driving to go and burn calories and a lot of them are coming short distances possibly like me and they're choosing instead of to bike to drive because of how you know just easy it is it's easy and you know we as humans have spent you know decades, centuries of our existence working to make life easier, you know, through technology. And, and, and what do you think in hunter-gatherer societies, the term LA fitness and <laughs> like, th this is a, this whole Did hunter-gatherers have of... the choo-choo trains? No, I mean, they didn't, they didn't have to debate this strange decision well, about they didn't even have cars back then they didn't even have language yeah. i don't think they were they would be able to have a debate regarding you know I, car versus bike i'm not i'm not going to you know i'm not an expert so i'm not going to speak on this if someone is you know an anthropologist or something like they can well no they didn't i mean they might have had their own form of language but they didn't have right. like, they didn't have the spoken word that we do like the written language that can be, you know, spoken from our, vo from our voices. You know, 
Right. The and I know that because I've studied. I've stu- I, I, I'm a history buff. I minored yeah. in history, and I all my you know a lot of my free time is spent reading history books and listening to history podcasts. Granted, not all of them are about our great ape ancestors. The point being is that <laughs> in hunter gatherer societies, there was no need to go to an LA fitness like the yeah. society. I mean, the bicycle wasn't a thing. The car was. There, there's tons of things. So that I see what, what you're saying is like we have created this need to have gyms. Because we've developed a lazy society. Is that what you're saying? I feel like our society has become far removed from, like, our our evolutionary origins. Like, but, we've, we've evolved so... F- at least with a bicycle, I think that's an invention where I'm like, oh, it's a physical activity, at least. It's not... A car is, like, literally... There's no physical activity involved in that, like. Yeah, and but the thing is, again, you know, back to my earlier point, that is what we as humans have been doing for centuries: is making life easier. Yes, it's it's a funny conundrum that we find ourselves in. We literally have gotten to a point where we need to have gyms for us to drive to, to work out with massive spend, parking lots because we spend all day sitting down to get to work to sit down while at work to only sit down to get back home and to sit down at home (laughs) so we need to have a place where we could spend an hour or two a day to spend all our energy because the entire entirety of the rest of our days are spent not really being active unless you're you know in an active job like construction but even then you don't see construction workers biking to work so so th- I think is it like where where are we going? Like this is the the question of like where is our society going? Like what is the ideal? Is the ideal this massive parking lot where the building is zoned for having this insane parking minimum, or is there is there a different way of? No, I wonder if like you've heard of that company like. Carvana or whatever that has sells those cars out of those tall buildings. Do they have parking lots around a building where they have cars in the building? I'm sure they do. I don't know what the what what the parking minimum is for that. I don't even know what that's zoned as a Carvana. But like that's not. There's no precedent for that. I mean, zoning. There is no precedent. There wasn't zoning in like until you know the early 20th century. The idea of zoning wasn't even a thing. A lot of the best architecture in a city like Chicago or Galena is there wasn't zoning for them to build that. Like, you know, Houston doesn't have any zoning code still. That's a different problem that <laughs> is there, though. It's not like they're building beautiful, walkable neighborhoods mm-hmm. there. Like, there was a walkable form for how our towns evolved. I think there was a there was like a golden age for how some of these downtowns turned out and then mm-hmm. like like we well, all know I the history there. Give you the quick history spiel on it, you know. In the uh early eighteen hundreds into late eighteen hundreds and early nineteen hundreds, we did have, you know, pretty walkable downtowns. You know, the suburbs actually developed out of the invention of the uh the um Streetcar. Streetcar, yeah. yeah. Inner urban streetcars. Yeah, people were able to now be able to live a little farther away from the city because they had access to a, you know, train, 
that was easy to easily accessible and took them from their suburb to the city. Like these were streetcar suburbs. And, you know, they still exist in Chicagoland. The suburbs, you know, were built around those streetcar developments. Right. So, you know, it's not like you were living super far from it. It was within walking distance because cars were still not prevalent. But then World War Two happens. You know, we see all these changes in technology and everything. But one of the most important takeaways was what Eisenhower found, which was that the Germans in World War II had a very intricate system of highways that allowed them to very quickly deploy troops from one field of battle to the other. And so Eisenhower, you know, saw this while he was a general, and he came back to the United States and he passed through Congress and the House the Interstate Highway Act which created, you know, the highway system that we know today that allows us to get all over the country by car. And what that did was cause a huge, that, you know, that was, the, that was the hammer that created the surge in car usage in this country. And, like, beyond streetcars and interurbans, there were long-distance train routes between cities that would have paralleled the interstate highway system like there was an existing and you could get into air travel also being another force that would have caused the trains to be irrelevant but the yeah what you're talking about with the interstate highway system that was a death blow to railroads yeah it was a death blow to railroads and that's what led to the cities that we know today because again you know as we discussed cities were walkable very walkable but then with the introduction of the highway system cities started to just plop down connections to those highways and then the roads branching off of them all over this all over the cities and that happened in the already established cities you know from the east coast to the midwest obviously a lot of the western cities you know more so developed with the times in the later half of that century so you know they more so were built around the the car and roads while places like chicago new york boston they just plopped down the roads on top of the cities Right, right. I think, though, that we're living through history right now and don't realize it. And I think that's what's kind of crazy about where we're at and where this podcast is being recorded is that we don't know exactly like a lot of these speculations we're having. Like, I'm sure we'll listen to this in some time and be like, wow, like it's kind of crazy to see how things have changed. But I mean, what do you what do you think the city is going to look like in five years from now? You know, it's a it's a very hard question, and you know, there's there's a lot of ways you can go with it. You know, you can have a lot of different theories and speculations about how the cities will develop. But I think what we are seeing is a lot of effort on the side of urban planners and our political leaders, even and policymakers, to try and change the traje- trajectory of our cities in this country. Um, and trying to work on building more livable, urban, walkable spaces. I mean, we've seen it even in the suburbs around Chicago. You know, they're trying, more suburbs are trying to develop these downtown areas that kind of resemble like a mini city, you know, something to attract the more younger people that are just graduated and got good jobs and are wanting to move out of the city to start a family. And the, and the biggest, I think, the reason why I think these walkable downtown areas are at least where from my where I'm coming from now is the labor issue I think would be the biggest reason why this might not happen because the service industry makes up a large portion of the entertainment in these communities 
I think those kind of uncertainties we're also faced with at this junction. So it's kind of interesting, like... What do you, you, what do you mean, like, we're facing uncertainties? Because, I mean, you know, we're at an all-time high for, you know, we're in a point right now where the supply of labor is actually outpacing demand. It's almost like you're wondering, though, like, how is it that, you know, the people who live in these communities like are the the people that are working in in these walkable downtowns do they live where they work is that reality oh, possible for definitely, people definitely definitely probably not to me because that's my question is like are you assuming that people have to take extremely long bus journeys to these walkable cuz these are walkable downtowns when you look at them yeah if you you know if you're able to get to them and they're they're great, but I don't I don't think getting to Northbrook or Vernon Hills from another community where people might be working somewhere else to come there, like how is that going to factor if gas is this high and like 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 what's gonna happen? Like I feel like when you're talking about these affordable downtown areas that are coming up, the question of like affordable housing comes up at a certain point. Like you want to at least what I'm thinking about is like how do you integrate other. I guess have a more inclusive version of this reality potentially. Well, now now we're starting to intersect with politics again here. I mean, you touch on affordable housing, and you know that's a whole powder keg of an issue right there. Um, because you know. I think a lot of these developments they're not they're not solving the affordable housing crisis well, that exists. It goes to a larger issue, and that is the supply of housing as a whole in our country. Our supply, our housing supply is not keeping up with demand. That is definitely for sure. Simple economics of supply and demand right there. And, you know, an interesting case study that I read in The Economist, um, the city of Seattle, you know, you go there even right now and you're seeing like lots of buildings being built. You know, you think like this place is having a housing boom, but it's still really expensive to live in Seattle. And, you know going back to zoning codes and things like that, it's so expensive because we have so many regulations pertaining to building housing that it becomes very costly and expensive for a developer to go in and build a multifamily housing, single-family housing, whatever it may be. Well, I think you're also thinking about, like, like strategically building housing in places where there is economic opportunity for people and the commuting distance are distances are shorter like i think sometimes like are we thinking about things strategically about how we can you know bridge that housing and transportation those kind of questions because i i think if you look at things isolated like yeah i'm building a walkable community but is this walkable community what does it mean to the metropolitan area like can people get here or is this just this little utopia because i think of a lot of these renderings i see of these things is they're little like utopian communities where it, it looks like a happy place for a lot of people, but every single suburb is building. It's like you're seeing the same trends with malls, but with these walkable. I, I hope I'm not too cynical about it, but it's almost like like it's almost like this commodity walkability. Is, it shouldn't be this commodity. It should just be a general thing is like people should live in places that have. Yeah, it's funny going to apartments.com, you know, looking for a new apartment. And there's like that score at the bottom for the walkability of the neighborhood that the apartment is located in. Like, oh, I got to make sure that I can actually, you know, walk around where I'm living. You know, I got to get a good score. 
then that algorithm, like, obviously, it fair. I think it represents areas fairly well, but there's another thing for human experience to go there and just say, like, there are some things that you just, you can't really quantify some things that you, you know, there are some places with a high walk score, you, there should be some kind of, like, emotional feeling I have about being there, too. Mm-hmm. Like, like, I don't want everything to be an algorithm. I don't want everyone to make a decision like, oh, this had the highest walk score I've ever seen. Like, I don't want that to cloud people's yeah. perspective. Like, you got to go there. You got to experience the street life and decide, is this the place for me? You know, definitely a very wide ranging and complex issue. You know, as we, you know, go on and do more podcasts, you know, we'll really start to narrow in on specific issues pertaining to these different things we've been talking about and really get into the nitty gritty of the planning, politics and policy. Um, But, you know, at the end of the day, you know. When it comes to speculating about, you know, how things are going to change in the future, you know, it's, it's, we're not, you know, like I said, you know, a lot of politicians, policy leaders, planners, they're working towards uh, retrofitting our cities to have, you know, the commodity, as you put it, of walkability being more prevalent. Um, But the more, you know, challenging issue is that people still want to own a single family home. I I think that that's not an efficient use. Like if if and, we had a more efficient and use to quickly of, stipulate here for anyone who, you know, doesn't get this uh, you know, planner terminology, a single family home being, you know, that lone large home that you'll see in a suburban area that, you know, one family lives in as opposed to multifamily housing which will refer to apartments and condos and you know, there you know, has to be a middle ground where because you can't you just look at the the you have all these factors transportation costs like the density of people that want to live in a community unless you're living in a community of like a very small number of people in large metropolitan areas like there's no way that it's attainable for everyone to have that unless we all move to these small communities. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the interesting things about, you know, Chicago, as opposed to, you know, some other cities you might visit, is you got a lot of these, like, you know, neighborhoods with, you know, not single family houses per se, but still decent sized houses. You know, there are one house for one family and they like you know line down the street they're not as big as a suburban house in schaumburg but they still you know are pretty decent i mean you're talking bungalows and if if you've seen a bungalow this is a smaller almost like one and a half stories like there's one story and then there is another story with this smaller window it's kind of a trapezoid shape if you're looking oh, at my it. My grandparents' house in the city was more as just one story and then a basement type of house that they had. But the ornamentation, like, you just recognize... And they're long. Another, like, right. like, like Lena, like we talked about earlier, they're long houses. Somewhere along the line, though, like, we stopped building it like that. <laughs> yeah, now we just have the extremes. Large single-family house with a big backyard or... A cramped up little apartment. I think it's time to talk about missing middle housing because I think that at this point, <laughs> no, we, we got to save that for another. That, that'll make a nice juicy episode in the future. <laughs> right, but there's a certain housing type where I want to look at it now and be like, like I look at bungalows and I'm like, 
yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah. I know, I know what that is. Yeah, he's giving that face of like, right, mm, yeah, right. Me like, I like bungalows. Te gusta. But I, there has to be like, well, maybe, maybe not everyone's gonna have a bungalow. Maybe there's like this like thing in the middle that's like, ooh, three units, four units, okay. Mm-hmm. We're not, we're not. Why aren't we building it like that? <laughs> why, why, like, why don't we have an architectural style now? That's Would that like, be like, like. So a flat. Actually, I don't understand this myself. Like, what's a flat exactly? It's how's it differ, like, differ from an apartment? You look at how many stories there are, and you say each story is a flat. So and like then each unless story is one housing unit. Yeah, and then some. So is that some kind of, buildings is that kind of are. Like what you're saying. Yeah, and then but a six flat would be like three stories, but there's two units on each story what's this you know your apartment that we're in right now i would say it's a little bit bigger than a six flat i think there's probably 12 units in it um but this is missing middle housing on this street in particular uh most of the housing that would have been like this got torn down for large lot single family homes we literally went in reverse like in an area where there's tons of public transit it's fairly bikeable fairly walkable we literally went in reverse and tore a lot of it down for single like it's like doesn't then you have that other trend of like people moving into urban areas that are lowering the density it's like what mm-hmm. <laughs> you know we talked about it at the beginning of the podcast i visited galena you know that's uh, a really charming community definitely recommend anyone who hasn't visited galena illinois to go out and visit it and you know not just to visit the old home of ulysses grant but i mean the the downtown itself is beautiful, just beautiful. But, you know, it's got that, you know, system, you know, businesses on the bottom, decent sized apartments on top. And, you know, even on top of that or, you know, beside it, so does more, more specifically, you have, you know, all this housing that's, you know, within that middle housing type that you're talking about that's surrounding the downtown area. Yeah. And I think in a community like Galena, a lot of those are bed and breakfasts and like assorted things associated yeah, with tourist city so you know a lot of it's you know catered towards a airbnbs and Airbnb. like if i don't know how many communities there are that have the same layout as galena that don't have like i feel like it's it's really cool how the economy there is working and it is transformed itself i guess that. you know it begs the question for me like can a small town make a better urban area than a big city i have asked myself that question many times because (laughs) i think that's one way to look at it is like if you're able to solve the economic question of what activities are occurring in that small town you you might be able to figure that out if there isn't any you know if there's no economy in that town Mm -hmm. Well, generally, I mean, at least in the way of Galena, you know, you have all these small towns. You know, you have a ton of small towns within an area, right? And basically the economy is, you know, built upon all those small towns coming together and people go, like, you know, one of the waiters at the restaurant in Galena was from Dubuque, Iowa. So he's traveling, you know, 20 minutes from across the border, across the Mississippi to work in Galena. Dubuque, I've enjoyed, there's a really cool elevated I don't know if you saw it, but it's a basically a it's a funicular is that is what the term is. It's a railroad that goes up a hill. Hmm. And there was a couple there who visited it because they love funiculars. 
talking about beautiful railroads. The this most is a beautiful route I've ever. I mean, not route, but like portion of a route was when I took the Amtrak from Chicago to Portland, and you wake up in the morning the second night after the second night on the train, and you just see the beautiful Columbia River. And, you know, it's this huge, gorgeous yeah. river, and the train just goes along it. It's so beautiful to see, especially in the morning with the sun rising out on it. Definitely recommend as a train trip, except for the first half. It's just cows. Never never trust a long-distance Amtrak if you're in the middle of the route. <laughs> if, you're, if you're getting on in a place that is not at the beginning or the end... It's going to be delayed, so don't don't get on in like Minneapolis on that train and say I'm ready for this. Like it was really cool and interesting though to see like all the stops along the way in these small towns, and you just look at them and like they're dying. You know, I mean, you some know, of them though, small midwestern towns, they're just dying. Some of them have been able to do rails to trails, and they have been able to kind of attract people who want to come for the scenery. I know on along that route that you're talking about from Chicago to Portland, there are some towns that they have these giant tunnels where you can bike through them, and that's been a big draw for people. But I don't think that's like a, you know, getting there is not always easy for people. It's in a pretty remote part of the country. What is the future of where we're going to be living. Well, yeah, I think you talk about like people who are working from home and they're choosing to take trips to places that are interesting. Maybe driving is expensive. Maybe this means the Amtrak becomes more relevant for people. But like, what's the balance that we're looking for in our future? And I, I, I think that, I don't know, I personally, I want to have access to re- like natural areas. I think that's something... That's interesting to me. Um, But I think also having like a mix of walkable amenities is also beneficial. So I don't I don't know what the future holds for us necessarily. I mean, you know, I would say, you know, looking back and, you know, what got us into the situation in the first place. Right. It was a major, major overhaul in U.S. policy the Interstate Highway Act. So what is it going to take for us to change course and, you know, start building better, more human-friendly towns, cities, and other small communities? It's going to take a huge new, you know, we we, we just saw the infrastructure plan pass uh, the U.S. House and Senate. And, you know, what we're seeing in that mainly... We'll cut that. What you're seeing in that mainly is uh, investments in one, updating, you know, the road infrastructure, bridges and roads all over the country, but then also, you know, small investments for public transit and, you know, even Amtrak and other railroad companies and also investments in electric vehicles, which is something that we can, you know, expound on in future episodes. But what I think it's going to take to really see a major change in the way our cities are functioning is another new major overhaul of our railroad system from Amtrak and our you know slow speed trains to high speed trains a major high speed rail project like we did with the interstate highway system we need to do it with trains i think that if you can justify why people are traveling on high speed rail i think that you know would be Important. I don't know if policymakers and politicians are interested in it, 
if people can't get use out of it. I don't know. Are politicians going to get reelected if they're pitching this? <laughs> or is this just some kind of pipe dream that... Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, at the end of the day, I guess, you know, it is more so of that pipe, pipe dream that, you know, planners and policymakers have. It's not something that the politicians, the politics part of the intersection is going to get on board with because, you know, people like their cars. Because, you know, in our, in our idealistic world, what we're seeing with, like, the American High Speed Rail Association, you know, they promote a system where basically every major city in the country, in a conjunction of small towns along the way, are connected by high-speed rail. And then roads are essentially a, a means of connecting to more sparse towns that are out of that, you know, those areas. But for the most part, the idea and the hope would be that you know, people are functioning within, you know, those main corridors. And there is an argument to be said that we it is looking more realistic, you know, with remote work or hybrid work becoming more of a popular way of, you know, people working, it becomes realistic that you don't need a car as much and you can rely on something like high-speed rail. I think that that coupled with strengthening commuter rail systems would be a because i think a commuter rail system can get people in between you know pretty far distances within a metropolitan area so yeah but you know if i could say like the more realistic future that we need to focus on is simply expanding the current local public transportation systems that we have and making them more efficient, attractive, and competitive with cars. You know, rising gas prices, they might help a little bit, but when they come down eventually, you know, public transit's going to have to really step up their game, especially because, you know, they're still seeing major declines from the pandemic. I think that I'll add that the equity component of it is really important that trying to solve the last mile issue especially for people who are only relying on public transit is is really important i think especially as like these jobs are located in very far flung areas of the metropolitan area yeah it's it's you know that really opens up a whole you know other topic of discussion and it's a very important one because you know you look at a lot of these major cities from chicago to boston to new york la whatever it be and you always see that you know there's these more low-income areas where people you know they can't afford a car but they also don't get quality access to public transportation or it doesn't take them where they need to go i think that's like the biggest question is like how do we figure out how to offer the services mm -hmm. that people will utilize and and how do we make it more competitive with you know ride sharing or something mm -hmm. like that i mean that opens up like a, the, the it almost gives you like a, a pro to zoning right because you know the idealistic version of public transportation is where you know you're able to get from your home a short distance by foot to a train and that train takes you to a designated area where all the businesses are right and you know everything's like that's the loop for chicago that's where the ideal place was for this concentration of employment was um but you know we don't see that you know jobs are spread out all over the place so it almost it's almost like giving a 
pro argument for zoning because it's like, oh, well, we can just, you know, zone ourselves into having public transportation be more efficient by just saying all these, you know, businesses and places of employment have to be where the trains are. Yeah, you could go pretty far as to have a pretty rigorously upzoned, but then you're focusing your resources into a small area versus because we have finite resources. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, and it would just never really work in, you know, realistic terms, especially with, you know, the suburbs being their own uh, specific government entities and, you know, they're, you know, all competing to have a better economy. So, you know, you have all this comp- intercompetition between governments. Yeah, I think that's because if everyone has their own version of a walkable downtown, it's like, is everyone going to be able to lease out all these walk? It's like you're just shifting these puzzle pieces between places it's like like yeah you know, like the term i hear thrown around, thrown around a lot is live work and play right you know that's like the goal that these governments these local communities seek to achieve is creating a place where you can live work and play all in the same area and never have to leave right but it's just not totally realistic because of how dynamic our economy is you know someone living in the town of Schaumburg, you know, they might not have the proper job for them in Schaumburg. And it's just not possible for them to work there, but they love living there and that's where they want to live. So it's very, you know, difficult to really create a community that can really centralize your residence into it. I think it comes down to identity and, you know, who people feel like they if they belong to that place. And I think that, I don't know, it'll be interesting to see where people identify with in the future. Is that going to be small towns? Are suburbs going to be the place people identify with? Or, you know, what is identity? (laughs) What is identity? That's definitely, and you know, every town really does at the end of the day have its own little unique identity and it comes out especially when you see little you know rivalries between specific communities sometimes it's all based on for me at least like food and but you know again it expands (laughs) food (laughs) does this does this place have interesting are there interesting you know are there interesting people doing things with food? Are there are the breweries all right? You know what what do they? Because those are intangibles, you know. Yeah, Mark here is our residential chef. You know, you have any cooking or baking questions? You actually have a you know a side hustle right with your um, what is it a, a web page or a blog for food cooking? Yeah, I, I I like to I like to think about the different restaurants in our community and highlight them and try to explore because I think that's a big way for me to get out and meet people and and find out what's going on in the community and, and, and get to know the different types of people because food's a big connector for yeah, me. I mean, food, restaurants, and, you know, even expounding on that, you know, just, uh, you know, little unique, you know, shopping stores of clothing or uh, yeah. antiques or items of interest, you know, having unique places that aren't part of big chains can really be beneficial for a community in building its own unique identity that can also act as a draw from people from other communities to want to visit it. Like the intangible factors that go into it, like you could have all your, all the things could be there for it to be a really livable place, but then you have this like one thing that really separates it that people are like, oh, 
that's going to be the real difference maker for me. But I think also at the same time, it's like if the fundamentals aren't there, like I, I don't know. I When I went to Nashville, I noticed that there were a lot of new developments going in. Like there was a lot of density that was being created. Like it was like it was very noticeable to me that people really, really wanted to to go there and they really wanted to to be, to be there and like luckily they were planning for it so you could have a place that people want to be but. what attracts you more to the city the the unique culture that it, you hear about it from afar here in chicago or more so it's like location like is it located along the beautiful mississippi river or on a lakefront you know what is like one of the major drivers for you I think it's a balance. Like the city has to obviously understand that it has this amenity or this natural recreation and and takes advantage of that. I feel like Chicago does pretty well with the lakefront trail. Like, um, yeah, like the the city of La Crosse in Wisconsin. I went there for a semester back in my undergrad, and you know they did an immense, amazing job at really, you know, capturing their uh, riverfront that they have because it's a it's a lacrosse for anyone who doesn't know in Wisconsin. It's their westernmost uh, city right on the Mississippi between Minneapolis and Madison, Wisconsin. And, you know, they did an excellent job at building this beautiful riverfront along it that extends, you know, as you go along it, it even extends out into a bike trail into some forests that go towards these beautiful ridges that they have on the outskirts of the city. And, you know, they do a lot of activities on that riverfront from, you know, having music fests to having, during the winter, they have this huge, huge lights display of Christmas lights and other amenities that you can go and visit. And 4th of July, you know, they got all banging with, you know, lots of fireworks and fun things to do. And they really do a great job of taking that small bit of real estate that they have that's unique to them and making it into something that's attractive to tourists. Yeah, I think that somehow Galena... Galena is like the Nashville of the Midwest. I haven't been to lacrosse, but I want to visit. Um, but yeah, there's somehow like people are like... Like the community builds on its strengths and they they know they know how to plan around it kind of. Yeah, yeah. but then you get into the... Uh, the question of what do you do with a community that doesn't really have any natural strengths, right? Like, you know, where I work, Village Lake Zurich, you know, they got a lake and it's a, you know, pretty decent sized, beautiful lake. And they're able to, you know, build their community centered around that lake and do a lot of things utilizing it. But what happens when you take, like, how does a place like, uh, you know, Schomburg get from, get from how it started to where it is today when they don't have any natural strengths? Well, the mall is important to people in a certain time of history, but as the mall changes, I think Schomburg's story is not unlike a lot of other suburban communities that probably had when the, had too much of their identity based around the mall. So I think it's about repurposing malls and repurposing these kinds of uses into something where... Yeah, but I'm thinking more like, like how can a... So let's say, okay, so maybe Schomburg was a bad example there. You know, take a community like um, Northbrook, say, right? How did they become a place that people want to live when they literally had nothing unique going on for them in terms of the natural environment? And you know, that, there's a I, podcast topic right there is, uh, you know, water. 
and how it creates cities. <laughs> I I think that there's some more complex economic trends that are at play there that and also I think there's other community forces that are creating certain groups of people who are moving amongst each other in the same area and those community forces are unrelated to the land use so it's basically only its existence is totally reliant on Chicago I think that there is I mean mean, maybe it's an episode it is another episode topic definitely but again you know it's it's it is true like these suburbs obviously did all come to fruition because of the city of Chicago but again they had to start you know sure people wanted to move out there but they could have chosen to move to a place like Lake Zurich or a place along the Desplaines River you know they could have chose more I guess you know just naturally artistic areas to live but then they some people chose to live on just a flat piece of land that has nothing going for it I think that that demand for the supply of single-family housing and proximity to central business district affects that mostly. Like, people want to live close to the central business district. Like, that paradigm of thinking was prominent in the 20th century of, I want to live close to my workspace, but the the supply of single-family housing is finite and define the place for that. Like, it was a natural kind of, like, like, if you look at the economic theory of it, like, that's where people are going to move to be in close proximity to where the jobs are. But at this at this point, it's not as obvious, I guess, is what I think. It's like work from home for a large portion of the population. Some communities that have been looking at these commuting patterns, like I feel like like it, maybe they aren't as desirable because I, I think that's like literally what's happening is like like. I don't know what the next choice people are going to make is, really, mm-hmm. for the next generation. No, one benefit of like the whole work from home thing is that you know these people they own these you know big, nice, beautiful houses out in the burbs. You know, originally they only got to spend a few hours of them in them every day, and they had their weekends, but that's two days a week. Most of their time was spent away from their homes. But now, because of work from home, more people are actually able to really utilize their dwelling places. So, you know, I guess I would have to ask then is, you know, do you think work from home is here to stay? I think if it comes to people's identity, I think that people want to be able to feel like themselves. And I think that's a big emphasis on it. Like, if if we can adapt our whole entire community around being able to go because like when we built offices they were very segregated from the rest of our society like they're so separate from it's unnatural almost like you have to go to this place that's that's outside of of who you are as a person and try to be in that space unless we can bring like communal office spaces closer to where you live maybe that is a middle ground you know that's one of the things that has always drawn me to why i'm studying public administration and working government is because you know working in a 
in a city hall or a village hall, you know, it's it doesn't have that same, you know, uh, culture and ideas and office space, right? You know, as you mentioned, you know, offices, they're so unnatural. Like, it's a place built for people to go and perform work. But a town hall, it's more, you know, not, obviously not natural as a tree, but it's still more natural in the sense that, you know, it's a central gathering place for the people of a community to come together and, you know, govern themselves and, you know, run their town. And I've always enjoyed that aspect of, you know, being working a worker in government. Yeah, I think that the shared kind of like, because it's a very specific use, it's very interesting. Some Some office buildings you look at are like, they're so general where it's like, how do you differentiate? And, you know, there's always been a whole science about, uh, you know, how to develop a better office space. I remember there was an episode on the podcast, The Other 99. Oh, the, yeah, 99% yeah. Invisible, yeah. 99% Invisible. They were actually, they had a whole episode where they were talking about, like, you know, some of the great minds of the 19th century in the field of office science and how they were trying to create an office space that really, you know, helped promote productivity, but also people's connection with the office, if you can think of that actually being possible. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that, like, it's strange how, like, some office buildings are, like, they're ultra-modernist, like, they almost, like, came out of the same era as, like, other high-rise dwelling units like i'm i'm all for finding a middle ground where it's not these you know very very segregated um large you know for living or for working like no one wants to you know you want to live close to your community kind of obviously like if you live along the lake like you you live in a large high-rise for that but yeah, but you know, I think work from home, the hybrid work schedule is definitely going to become more of a staple of our society. You know, like I mentioned earlier on in our discussion, you know, we've always been striving for that point in our human history to just make life a little bit more easier, right? And part of that is, you know, you know, in terms of the work-life balancing act that everybody tries to do, you know, we're pushing for more of life over work, right? Because that would just make life a little bit easier. And having that work from home definitely contributes to that. And, you know, as our society, you know, changes with, you know, the older people moving out of positions of policymaking and uh, corporate leadership and et cetera, you're going to start seeing more changes made to, you know, just make life a little bit easier for everybody in terms of, you know, how they're able to work and balance their life at the same time. And, you know, obviously right now, gas prices are helping with the, you know, pro work from home people. Yeah, that's that's certainly the case. So, you know, we've talked about a lot of topics here today and, you know, a lot of questions that have been unanswered. A lot of ones that, you know, we can only speculate on and we really can't come up with a definitive answer for. We hope that... You're curious, you hear some things that make you wonder and think you know more deeply about where you live and you know how the built environment and politics and planning all come together and interact. And you know, going forward we're 
and Mark here going to be working on a lot of special topic episodes relating to all different sorts of things. And there'll be there'll be guest speakers. There'll be all sorts of of people who are interested in uh, chiming in here and giving some insight into their specific yeah. area. So, you know, thank you very much for tuning in and listening with us today. If you enjoyed the podcast, we'd ask that you please share it with family and friends, you know. Uh, this is the beginning of our journey and creating a podcast where we can really, you know, help get people thinking about the intersection of so many different issues.